stuff uh, that they do, the things that are normal to them. Uh, I remember the first time I ever went on a missions trip out of the country. Um, well, not the first trip I ever went on. The first trip I led, it was down to Guatemala. And uh, the missionaries there taught all of us the missionary pledge. He said, repeat after me. Where you lead me, I will follow. What you feed me, I will swallow. I knew right then we were in for some culture shock. In fact, I, I, I read some interesting stuff about things people eat around the world. In Thailand, they eat rat cooked whole over an open fire and then served in a bowl of hot chili and rice. In Norway, sheep's head is smoked for a couple of days and is served in half. It's expected that you eat all of it, including the tongue and the eyeballs. In Hong Kong, it's common to have cat meat with steamed bread. Some of you just backslid right then. You just... <laughs> Thailand features large hairy spiders fried in a wok. See, I figure if I cause you to lose your appetite, I can preach longer. That's Y'all are getting hungry for Rivertown. Is that what it is? Yeah. In the Philippines, they eat fried crickets. Did you ever try those, Mike? Fried crickets? No? Okay. In Indonesia, monkey toes are deep fried and eaten off the bone. I'd just like to see that. I don't want to eat it. I just... In Korea, they eat octopus, served in a bowl, and still alive. Occasionally, it's been reported that people have actually died eating octopus when the tentacles got suctioned in their throat and choked them to death. So, mm, be an exciting dinner party. I, I read that just to illustrate the fact that why in the world would people eat that stuff? And there's only really one answer. It's because they've accepted the cultural norms. It's normal. Not only is it normal, maybe it's all they've known. Now, now, if I told you that we were serving cat, I wouldn't last long. I know that. Because it's unthinkable to us. It's unthinkable. But yet, and go with me here. There are some things that have become the cultural norm in our society. That if you m remove yourself from our culture and jump into the word of God, those things just don't make sense. And so what we're going to do right now is we're going to go into a culture that's 2,000 years old. We're going to look at a people who we've never known. Most of us have never even been to this region of the world. And we're going to see what God has to say to them about their culture. But I want you to hear my heart today. This is not a history lesson that I've come to present to you today. God wants to speak through his word, the authority of this book right here that is living and active. And God wants to speak to us about the culture that we live in today. As we look at how Paul encourages the church at Thessalonica, they were living in an ungodly culture. They were living in a culture that was contrary to the word of God. And he's going to speak into that culture. And my prayer is that you'll allow the Holy Spirit to speak into ours. 
So before we get to that part of the message, let's start in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. In verse 6 through 8. I just want to catch us up to speed a little bit. He says in verse 6, But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all of our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. I love verse 8. He says, for now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. Now, some of you, you're learning this story now. We've talked about it for several weeks. But, but Paul is the apostle that started this church. And he went there. He planted the church. It took off. He got pushed out of town because of persecution. And so now he's worried about the church. He's hoping that the church's faith has withstood the persecution. In fact, last week we looked at the scriptures a little earlier in chapter 3 where Paul says that he was concerned. He says, I was afraid in verse 5 that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labor might be in vain. So Paul is hoping against hope that this church has trusted in Christ in the midst of persecution. That their faith has not faltered. And now, Timothy, who he sent to find out how they're doing, has come back. And Timothy gives him this report. And Paul says, now we really live. Because I know that you haven't folded. You haven't given up. You haven't faltered. You still believe. You still trust Jesus. I'm so excited to hear from Timothy that everything's going well. That's what motivated him to write this letter that we're reading. He wanted to hear about the church. He's so thankful for this church that in verse 9, look at it. He says, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that we have in the presence of our God? Because of you. Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. So Paul Paul loves this church. He's excited about this church. He says, we don't stop praying for you. Night and day we pray for you because because we love you so much. In fact, in the middle of his letter, he just breaks into praying for him. In the next three verses, he can't help himself. Paul starts praying for the church again. And this little prayer that he prays is a good model for us to see how wide and how broad our prayer life ought to be. How many of you know that God's desire is a relationship with us? Now, I, I don't know if we got any young adults or teenagers or, or, or singles here, but this is just free advice. If you want a relationship to work, you got to communicate. You got to communicate. If you, if you want to have a relationship with somebody, you got to communicate. All you married couples can nod your head because you've got it right and you've got it wrong. And you know, it requires communication. Prayer it's not a one-way street. Prayer is not us just throwing, uh, throwing Hail Marys up to heaven and hoping that God comes through and digs us out of our adversity. Prayer is a conversation. And so our prayers ought to be broad. They ought to be inclusive of all the things of our life, not just the moments of crisis. And so here's Paul modeling that for us. Look at verse 11. He's praying. He says, Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way For us to come to you. That seems like a very practical thing, doesn't it? He's saying, God, make a way 
Make a way of provision. We need to get from here to there. Every day, you ought to include prayers about direction. I can assure you that as we've been praying about this church and what this fall looks like and and even praying about sharing with you this morning earlier in the service about launching a second service, we've been praying, God, give us direction. It's a good prayer to pray. I don't ever want to assume or presume upon God that if I do this, He'll bless me there. You know, there's a lot of things in the church that we're guilty of doing and then asking God to bless. But you know what I've discovered? God always blesses His will. You never have to pray for God to bless His will. All we have to do is walk in it. And so a prayer that says, God, give us direction. Give us direction. Make a way for me to come. What an awesome prayer. But look at the next prayer he prays, verse 12. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. There's something awesome about this prayer. Paul is praying that God would work in the relationships in the church. Not just that it would be, you know, a a love fest that everybody would get along. But no, there's a purpose for it. He said, I want your love to increase and I want it to overflow for each other, but also for everyone else. So he's saying, God, use the church. God, work through the church. Jesus said, the world will know you're my disciples because... You love one another. So that's the heartbeat of what Paul's praying. God, use this church. Let them be so overflowing with love, so overflowing with joy for one another that the world takes notice that they are contagious, that there's something about them that people say, I don't have that in my circle of friends. I don't have that at my workplace. There's something that they have over there. Every time I'm in that atmosphere, it, it, it rubs off on me. I just want to be there. I, I feel something. And Paul is saying, God, work in the relationships within the church. That's a good prayer to pray. Do you pray that way? You know, the truth is, we usually take for granted the people that we love the most. How often do we overlook those that that we love the most, that are the closest to us, our our own family, our our close network, our, our church. But Paul is saying, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for your relationships because the way that you love one another is going to be an influence on the way the world loves God. Look at the last prayer he prays. Verse 13. May he, talking about God, may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all of His holy ones. Now this is where we, where we get a big picture in our prayer life. You know, we, we've all probably been guilty of this, but it's so easy to be consumed with the here and now, to be consumed with all of the list of things we want God to do, all of the struggles that we're facing and the things that are going on that we can't see beyond the day. But Paul zooms way out and he begins to pray about eternity. Paul begins to pray about that day when these people stand before the throne of God. Let me just urge you in your prayer life when's the last time you prayed about eternity when's the last time you lifted your gaze beyond your short prayer list of today's needs and said god i pray that in that day when i stand before you i'm found faithful god i pray that in that day that my children are standing there with me god i pray that in that day that the people that i'm witnessing to today would find acceptance and favor in your sight paul has eyes set on eternity God, lift our gaze 
beyond the here and now. To not be so consumed with the cares of this world that we lose our eternal perspective. We got to pray that way. Yes, pray for today. Pray for direction. Pray for the family of God. Pray for the relationships in your life. But don't fail to lift your eyes towards that eternal prize. That's what Paul said his eyes were fixed on. The prize that was set before him. And his prayer life and your prayer life reveals your priority. So let's get into chapter 4. He starts with these words, as for other matters. Now that's, that's an agenda shifting phrase right there. You ever been in a meeting, you know, with your boss and he's like, you know, you did a great job last quarter, wonderful job, sales are up, you're doing great, we, we love having you on the team. Now as for other matters, like, what, what do you mean as for other matters? Like the air just got sucked out of the office in that moment, what? What do you mean as for other matters? Now we're going to see something here about this church that maybe you haven't had indicated up to this point. But this church is a powerful church. It's an influential church. But it's not a perfect church. It's not a perfect church. Nor is there a perfect church because there's no perfect people. And so Paul is about to deal with some stuff in the church. He's going to address some issues that are going on in this church. And he starts out by saying, as for other matters. And it's almost like Paul's been waiting. He's been holding this back. And, and by the way, this is a, this is a good uh, leadership principle for you. Whether it's at your, uh, your job, with your employees, or in your home with your children. You know, psychologists tell us that it takes five positive statements to overcome one negative statement. Five to one. We need to be able to, to show the positive. You know, the, the tendency is when, when something bothers us, when, when he hears back from Timothy about something that's going on in the church, the tendency is to go, oh, I can't believe that, and start writing the letter. But Paul doesn't do that. We're in week five. We're in chapter four of a book that's only five chapters long. And now Paul gets to the other matters. So let me just say, if you're a parent or an employer or, or a spouse, or you're just dealing with people, it's good counsel to let the other matters be the other matters, not the only matters. Because the tendency for us is to, to just make a big deal out of what's wrong and to forget, forget all the good. And we can inadvertently do that to our kids. You know, Ephesians, Ephesians 6 begins with these words. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. It says, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise and it will go well for you and you will live a long and prosperous life. Parents love that verse. But the next verse says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. You know, I think one of the ways that we exasperate our sons and daughters is by making the other matters the only matters. When all we see is what they do wrong. All we see is that they didn't pick this up. They didn't do that. You, you didn't. And, and they don't balance it out. Take a lesson from the Apostle Paul here. Here we are moving into chapter 4. And now he says, now there's some things, guys, that I need to talk to you about. There's some other matters. We instructed you, he says, verse 1, how to live in order to please God as, in fact, you are living. Now. We ask you and we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Do it more and more. 
He's about to address some issues in the church. And by the way, these, these are not new. In fact, by reading chapter 4, you hear phrases like the one we just read in verse 1, where Paul says, Paul says, we instructed you, past tense. We instructed you. We've already covered this stuff. I'm just writing to reiterate. I, I don't know, maybe you've never wondered this, but as a pastor, I've wondered this. Have you ever wondered, what kind of messages did Paul preach? To this church. And we won't go back into it. But in previous weeks we talked about. I mean, maybe Paul only stayed there for a month. He got ran out of town pretty quick. What kind of messages does a guy have to preach. In order to come into a town. Start a church. Revival breaks out. He leaves. And then he finds out months later. From everywhere he goes. People are talking about this powerful church. I, I want to know. As a preacher. I want to know. What kind of sermons did Paul preach. Because, you know, there's this contention in our culture today that says if you want to grow a church, you got to preach about the things that people want to hear about. There's this, there's this contention in our culture that, that's fighting that says, you know, if you want to grow a church, you can't talk about the tough stuff. I mean, don't preach about sanctification. Don't preach about holiness. Don't you dare touch issues like immorality. I mean, God forbid, how would people want to come to a church when you don't condone every lifestyle that's out there? Right? That's, that's the feeling that, man, Paul must have preached some bell ringers. I mean, he must have had people jumping and shouting and saying amen for this church to take off the way it did. I think you'd be surprised. We get a glimpse at Paul's sermon notes in chapter 4. He's writing in letter what he preached to them When he was with them. Look at verse 2. He says, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. He's saying, we we gave you this. We preached this to you. We told you this. Well, what did he tell them? Verse 3. Here's the message. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That you should avoid sexual immorality. Verse 4, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And in this manner, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or a sister. The Lord will punish all who commit such sins. As we told you and warned you before. Again, he's saying, I preached this to you. You've heard this before. Let me reiterate it. Verse 7. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects these instructions does not reject a human being, but God. The very God who gives you His Holy Spirit. Now, Paul's been bragging on this church for three chapters. Their faith. Chapter 1 says, is known everywhere. It might be a little bit of a shock to learn in chapter 4 that the issue that Paul has to deal with is sexual immorality in the church. You're like, really? Like, that's happening? You've been talking about this contagious church and all the great things going on and, and that? What? How is that the issue in one of the greatest churches in the New Testament? How is sexual immorality the issue? culture 
It's the pressure of the day. It's the pressure of the culture. A couple things I just want to tell you about the culture that they were in. First of all, you got to remember this is a brand new church. Hadn't been saved very long. You know, we got to remember that about some folks. As the church fills up, as God saves people, church can get messy sometimes. You know, the Holy Spirit didn't say clean fish. He said, catch the fish. I'll make you fishers of men. It's not the church's responsibility to purify your life, to sanctify your life, to make you holy. It's not our, it's not our responsibility to say, if you'll believe the way that we believe, you can belong. No, no, no. The church says you belong. And we allow the Holy Spirit to work out your sanctification. But what that means is there's a process. Because we're all growing at different paces and at different stages. As, as we move as a church from where we are to where God wants us to be, it requires patience for those that are not near where we are. It requires humility to recognize that we are not where we need to be. And so there were issues in the culture that these people were being saved out of. The other thing you have to understand is that there is no time in history where marriage was devalued as much as it was at this time in history. It was so devalued. Uh, among the Jewish people, the idea of the sanctity of marriage was, was high and lofty and holy. But it was just an idea. At, at this time, in this culture... There was two, there was two types of teaching. And, and the teaching came out of Deuteronomy, out of the Old Testament. The teaching was that the only grounds for a divorce in the, the Jewish culture was if there was a matter of shame in a person's life. If, if, if there was a matter of shame. Now the traditional understanding of that was adultery. If, if the wife commits adultery, that's a matter of shame and the husband then has a right by the law that they lived by, to go and to get a divorce. But there was another teaching in that day that started loosely interpreting what a matter of shame is. For example, to some people, a matter of shame was if you burnt the dinner. Shame on you. A matter of shame was if a woman went outside without her head covered. And we still see this in Middle Eastern cultures. A matter of shame to some people was if a woman was found outside talking in the street with other men who were not their husband. That's a matter of shame and it's grounds for divorce. It had gotten so convoluted from the word of God that in the culture of this day, that if a woman raised her voice in her house and she was heard in the next house, she was considered a brawling woman. And that was a matter of shame. Now, have you ever noticed that water always travels down the path of least resistance? So if you've got these two standards for divorce, one is adultery. And the other is pretty much anything that you don't like is a matter of shame. How many of you know which one of those two theories was the most popular? Men loved it because they could pretty much do whatever they felt like doing. And women were basically brought to a place of, of enslavement. Had to watch what they said, where they said it, how they dressed, what they did. And so these are the two things that were, that were prevailing in the Jewish culture. Aren't you glad today that we don't live by a letter of the law, but by a law that's written on our hearts, not on stone? Amen. That Jesus has, has leveled the playing field. That the, the ground is even at the foot of the cross. Praise God we don't live under this kind of a religious system. But that was, 
That was the Jewish culture. But you've got to remember that Thessalonica, sitting right there at the crossroads of culture, was not just dealing with Jewish culture. They were also dealing with the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire, getting a divorce had, had gotten so commonplace that it was literally a cultural fad. It was popular. In fact, Seneca is quoted as saying this, Women were married to be divorced and divorced to be married. In Rome, they always identified the years by the consuls who were in authority. But fashionable ladies identified the years by the names of their husbands. You know, when I, when I read about history like that, a culture where morality is dead, it reminds me, and maybe I'm getting on a little bit of a soapbox here, but it reminds me that in America, how easily we forget what a blessing we live in and experience because we live in a nation that was founded on godly ethics, on biblical foundations. We, we don't live in a culture like they live now. We're moving that way. We continue to chip away at the blocks of, of biblical ethics. We cross over boundary lines and we, we go beyond places we've ever gone before and we pass laws condoning it. And I don't have to spend time this morning telling you about what's wrong with our culture. But as I look back at this culture, I see something that's powerful. That Paul is not writing a new gospel for Thessalonians that didn't apply in Jerusalem. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel writes a code of ethics on our heart, governed by the Holy Spirit himself. He wants to sanctify our lives. So they're living in this Roman culture. They're also living in a Greek culture. And in Greece, immorality had always been blatant. I read a quote from the Greek culture. Demosthenes wrote these words. He said, Speaking of those days, we keep prostitutes for pleasure. We keep mistresses for the day-to-day needs of the body. We keep wives for the begetting of children and for the faithful guardianship of our homes. That was the Greek culture of the day. That as long as a man provided for the, the needs and provided a home of his wife and his children, it was completely socially acceptable to go out and get a mistress to go out and find a prostitute. This is the culture that the church is being established in. And so all of a sudden these people are getting saved. They're coming to Christ. They're coming to faith. And it's totally normal for them to live a promiscuous lifestyle. To do whatever they want to do. And and if if, if their wife doesn't like it, just get a divorce. And so we see how radical the gospel is when it invades somebody's heart and life. There's not an area of your life that the gospel doesn't touch. And I'm not talking about legalism. We're not talking about falling into some uh, religious set of do's and don'ts. Paul is talking about what the gospel does in a person's heart and life. Verse 7, I want to read it again. He said these words, he said, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. That's why when he prayed for the church, in chapter 3, verse 11, we read his prayer. The prayer was that he may strengthen your hearts so that you can be blameless and holy. Do you hear the focus of that prayer? He's not saying strengthen your heart. He's not saying, be blameless, be perfect, be holy. He says, no, my prayer is to God. May He strengthen your heart so that you can be blameless 
and holy. That's why when he says now for other matters in chapter 4, he goes back to his sermon notes on sanctification. And he says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. What, what am I saying? What is Paul saying? Paul's saying the church that Jesus Christ bled and died for, gave his life's blood for. He didn't do that so that you could be an echo. He did it so that you could be a voice. He didn't do that so that you could be a product of culture, but a prophet to the culture. He said the gospel is transformational. And yes, you're living in a time of moral depravity. And yes, you're living in a time that doesn't value women. And yes, you're living in a time that doesn't know anything about the sanctity of marriage. But I'm not asking you to learn how to get to heaven in the midst of a culture. I'm asking you to live cross-culturally. To live a pure and a holy life. I wish I had time to talk more about how to do that. But hear what I'm not saying. If you leave this place today with a a checklist of all the improvements that you need to make. I better stop doing that. I better fix this. I better. Well, now some of that might be practical and maybe even helpful. But if you go out of here in your own strength with some desire or intention to be good and to do good, let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to fail. You're going to fail and you're going to get frustrated. And you're going to throw up your hands and you're going to say, I can't do it. And you're going to do one of two things. Either you're going to walk away from the gospel and say, it's impossible, it's impossible. Or you're going to do what is a very popular version today is to just change it to fit your lifestyle. Say, you know what? Maybe God doesn't really care too much about immorality. Maybe it's not such a big deal. Maybe holiness doesn't really matter that much anymore. Maybe that was a first century thing, but in today's modern day understanding of the word of God, it doesn't much matter. No, it matters. It matters. God's desire is that you and that I, as the church of Jesus Christ, would reflect his glory. To be a pure reflection of God. And that the one thing that, that hinders that reflection, where people cannot see Christ in us, is sin. It's sin. It's the sin issue in our own hearts and in our own lives. So Paul writes extensively about this through the gospel, but I just want to give you one more verse. It's in Titus chapter 2. Verse 11 and verse 12. Titus 2, 11 and 12. He says these words. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation. That's the grace we sang about earlier. It's amazing. We stand in awe of how God could come. And offer salvation. And and as we get ready to, to end this service, I assure you that God is offering salvation today. Grace is ever reaching. It's ever calling. It's right there. It's it's amazing and it's free. He's not asking you to do anything. He's not asking you to clean up your life. He's not asking you to change your habits or change your ways. The offer of grace is saving and it's powerful. But he says in the next verse, that grace, it teaches us. To say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, 
and godly lives in this present age. Let me just say, I think the order that those are communicated in are significant. Grace doesn't teach you how to say no to sin until grace has saved you. But once grace has saved you, once you've been, as we say in the church, washed in the blood, that just means all your sins have been forgiven and cleansed because the blood that Jesus shed on Calvary paid the price for your sins. You've been washed in the blood of Jesus. Once that has happened, that same Holy Spirit that comes and lives on the inside of you, the moment you receive Christ, He begins to teach you to say no to ungodliness. And here's here's my conviction today. That we live in a culture that is contrary to biblical ethics. We live in a culture that, that doesn't promote godliness or purity. At all. And maybe you're one of those people that you've accepted the grace for salvation, but you have since stopped hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit that's trying to teach you to say no to ungodliness. And in the same way that you teach your kids, the Holy Spirit wants to teach you. You don't tell your kids when they're toddlers 25 things that they need to do. You you teach them one thing. You don't leave them in in their little crib and and give them a list of instructions. No, you say, lay down. That's the goal. Lay down. (laughs) Just one thing. Lay down. And the Holy Spirit doesn't want to burden you with legalism. So there's a lot of people, they receive the gospel of salvation and then they heard the instruction from the church. Or, or from religion. And they missed, they missed the, the process of walking with the Spirit. So two things. Number one, don't be frustrated in where you're at. Don't, don't allow this heavy hand of condemnation to come on you. I mean, here's Paul looking at people who are dealing with sexual immorality. And he says, I'm so proud of you. You guys are tearing it up. You're doing great. I love you. That tells me that Paul was focused on their direction more than he was their perfection. God's not bothered by what you haven't figured out yet. He's patient. He's leading us to salvation. So don't don't be burdened down by what you don't have yet. But don't ignore what He is telling you. There may be one thing in your life today, and this is why you needed to be here. There's one thing in your life. It's a hindrance to your relationship with God. Maybe Maybe it's like this church. Maybe it's sexual immorality. Which doesn't have to be physical, by the way. Could be with your eyes. Could be with your thoughts. Maybe that's it for you. But maybe it's something altogether different. But you know, if you think too long about it, because the Holy Spirit does live inside of you, you feel conviction every time. And our tendency, because culture is powerful, our tendency is to just kind of go, well, you understand the day and age we live in. No, no, no. The day and age they lived in. Paul, through the Holy Spirit, said, live pure and holy lives. And it's not about getting stars or badges on our shirt. It's not about looking good. It's about the glory of Jesus. 
It's about being a church, a body that represents the head and reflects the Savior so that a watching world knows there's something different. This gospel is not a belief system. It's radical. It's life-changing. It's soul-shaping. It changes the way they talk, the way they walk, the places they go, the people they meet with. Everything is different because of Jesus. And in the midst of intense persecution, here's a church who stood on a firm foundation of lasting joy. And that can be yours. That can be mine. And that's my prayer for you today, that you would, you would have that kind of soul-sustaining joy in the Holy Spirit. I want to pray for you right now. Just bow your head all over this room. God, today, I understand, and I hope I've communicated it clearly, that, that it is sin. It's my sin. It's all of our sin that grieves your heart. I understand today, Holy Spirit, that you're not looking down on us choosing your favorite sons or your favorite daughters. It's your desire to fill the church. It's your desire to lead us, to abide with us, to order our steps, to govern our days. It's your desire. God, I also understand today that holy is just, it's not just your name. It's what you are. And the holiness of God is grieved by the sinfulness that I tolerate in my own life. So God, today, and I'm answering my own altar call, church. I'm not speaking for you. I'm speaking for me. God, today, search my heart. Test my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me. I know my tendency and my inclination to to want to just passively accept the cultural norms things that at one time I was gripped about, things that I knew didn't honor God. Today, I'm tempted to accept those things because it's become commonplace because I believe the lie. Everybody's doing it. God, today, allow us to look at ourselves not in the mirror of culture, but in the mirror of the holy word of God that does not change. And God, may we be changed. God, that we could be the kind of church, the kind of person that people watch in wonder. They're amazed at the joy that sustains us, at the peace that is ours even amidst persecution. God, help us to be that kind of a people that though we're not perfect and though we will fall, your word declares that, Lord, even a righteous man falls seven times but he gets back up again God I I just declare this today over your people today is getting up day for somebody that's fallen seven times or 77 times God today by your Holy Spirit invade this moment Lord for those that have turned off their ears and their sensitivity to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and we believe the lie that it's that it's normal that it's just the way It is. God, help us today to see ourselves in light of the Word of God and to be changed, to be changed, to be changed into the image of Jesus, our Savior. Can we stand today all over this room? Can we just stand? I want to to invite you to pray a prayer, a prayer of surrender. Now, if you know the Lord, I want you to pray this like you've never said it before. 
But if you don't know Jesus and, and you want to, grace truly is a gift. I don't, I don't have seven steps to give you. One. Come. That's, that's, the, that's the invitation. Come, Jesus said. So if you're here today and, and you, you believe the word of God and you believe that Jesus is our hope for salvation, our hope, I want you to pray a prayer with me. Just say this. Say, God, I surrender my life to you. I lay down my desires, my selfishness, my sin at the foot of the cross. I believe that Jesus paid for my salvation by putting my faith in Him. I receive His Spirit into my heart. And I believe that that same Spirit can teach me to walk in holiness and purity. God, I trust You to guide my steps. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I would encourage you to pray a prayer similar to that every day. Every day this week, say, God, pray the way that that Paul prayed in chapter 3. God, guide my steps. God, direct my path. And he will, he will. I want you to know, last word today, this church is not consumed by your perfection. But we are driven by the direction that God has for your life. We want to help you get from wherever you are to where God wants you to be. That happens by his spirit. By His grace. God bless your church today. As we leave this house this morning, let our people be refreshed. As those that are fellowshipping together around the table, God, help us to build deeper and lasting, significant relationships that we can journey together in this journey of faith. God, we pray that your blessing would be upon the gathering tonight from 6 to 7 o'clock as our missionaries come to share their heart. God, let us pick up something in the spirit realm of what's on them. And may we be even more willing to answer your call in our own lives. God, thank you for this time today. We give you praise for it in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Amen. God bless you today as you go.